Are you self-employed and looking to get a home loan? Do you want to buy a property with your super fund? Or has your mortgage application been knocked back and you need a solution? At Better Mortgage Management, we specialise in solutions for home and investment loan borrowers. With over 50 loan products and 23 years lending experience, we have the flexibility and expertise to help you achieve your property dreams. Call us at 1300 857 275 to discuss how we can help you. This podcast is brought to you by Better Mortgage Management. You're tuning into Cancer Culture, a podcast all about cancer. My name is Jackie Cowan and I'm an ex-cancer patient and also your host. I'm on a mission to let cancer patients and people affected by cancer know that they are not alone. Throughout this episode and the course of the podcast, you'll hear stories from people who are currently enduring cancer, lost loved ones to cancer, or whose lives have permanently been scarred and changed by cancer. This podcast can be both insightful and sad, so please strap in as it's one for the brave. I'm most definitely not a medical practitioner, however, a survivor of an illness who wishes to bring individuals together through hope, genuine human interaction and storytelling. Today, we are joined by someone who is incredibly special to me. He saved my life and he saved many lives. And for that, I am forever. And for that, I owe him forever. Today, we are talking to my oncologist. He is a beautiful man and there are many layers to him. I feel like this episode is such a testament to the beautiful human that he is and dad and person that he has been for so many people, but it's only a snippet of the many layers that he has. He's a genius. He's an empath. He's creative. He lives his life to the fullest. I am joined by my oncologist, which is Dr. Andrew Nickel. How are you today? Very well, thank you. And thanks for asking me along. That's okay. My pleasure. So today we're here to discuss, I don't know, I guess it's a different side to what we've been covering in recent episodes, but I want to talk about Dr. Nickel, where his journey started, how you got into oncology, I guess the emotional side of things, what it's like to be somebody in your field. And yeah, we're going to break that down because there are many sides, especially to people like yourself. And I don't think there is enough questions or are there enough episodes or interviews that cover people like yourself? So I'm really excited to get into today. But let's start from the beginning. What was your upbringing like or how did you get involved in medicine? Okay, so I came from a small city in North Queensland. My father was a university lecturer and my mother was a stay-at-home mum, as was usual in those times. With respect to getting into medicine, people often ask, was I always thinking of being a doctor? The simple answer is no. And there's two reasons for that. One was, I didn't really know what a doctor did. So how could I want to be a doctor when I didn't know what doctors did? I went to the GP occasionally and it was this hushed room and this guy would come out and quietly ask, your turn to come in and you'd go in and get your jab. But beyond that, I didn't actually know what doctors did. So how could I choose it as a career, as a kid? And then secondly, and totally different from that, 
I was a really enthusiastic guy, and when I was at high school, I didn't have any particular strengths or weaknesses. I was just across the board. So there wasn't any career I had to go into because I was good or bad at something, other than for the fact that I wasn't very good at talking. So that kind of swayed me a bit. But I wanted to do lots of things. I wanted to be a mathematician. So I went down and I met the university people say, what do I do to become a mathematician? I wanted to be a nuclear physicist, but I lived in a place that was near a nuclear reactor for several years. I wanted to be an engineer and an architect. But the thing that I most wanted to do when I was having to pin the tail on the donkey of my university application was medical research, as a medical research scientist. And I thought about that a lot. And I decided that if I really wanted to be effective as a medical research scientist, the best way to do that was to be a doctor first, so that you knew more about medicine and you were more likely to be able to lead a research team because you were a doctor and a scientist. So I actually chose medicine for my university entrance to become a medical researcher, but knowing that if that didn't work out, if I was hopeless at it or I didn't like it, then I could always fall back and be a doctor. Well, there you go. Was it similar in a sense that back then, did you have to study for seven years medicine? I had to do six years. So I left home to the University of Queensland, which was a thousand miles from home, lived in a college and studied medicine. Mm -hmm. Mm. What was that like? Leaving home at 17 to go to college was absolutely fantastic. Because (laughs) college was a life all of its own. It was an all-male college. I'd been to a co-educational school. So grew up with the knowledge and sense that females and males were equal, which is really important because a lot of people say with single-sex schools, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. But going to a co-ed school, you're competing with the girls equally. And I really enjoyed that. But the chance of going to an all-male college meant you could be a male and just do all kinds of male stuff without having to feel, gosh, I don't want the girls seeing us doing this. And that was a fantastic experience. So it made studying medicine hard because there was so much to do at college. There was sports to play that was really serious. There was college activities, there was dinners with girls, there was stuff. So college made it really hard to study hard. And so in the first few years, I did a bit too much other stuff and had to make up for that in my last few years of medicine. (laughs) Had to get serious. (laughs) I got really serious. Were you known to party a little bit here and there? I was more of a sportsman than a partier, so they didn't go together. I had a really serious upbringing and alcohols and parties wasn't really a part of it but I was really fanatical about sport. And so my life at college was really getting into the sporting teams and beating the other colleges. Did you beat them? Mostly. What kind of sport did you play? I ended up playing five different sports for college. And the reason for that was the college had a sporting system where if you won a competition, you got a pennant. And if you competed for the college for three sports, and then were chosen in the, the whole university team for two sports, you got what's called a half blue, which was really prestigious. If you could play five sports for your college and you're chosen in the university team for three of them, you got a full blue, which was super prestigious. So my first year of college, I got down and I played squash, which was my major thing. And I did running, which I did to keep fit for squash. So I did those sports oh, and I took up rowing in my, in my first year at uni. I'd never rowed before. So I did three things in my first year. And then during my first year, I discovered this half blue and full blue system. And I thought, well, that looks like a fun thing to do. So I then figured out how I was going to get a half blue, which I did. And then in my third year, I thought, okay, I need to learn some other sports. So I had been down and I'd watched the people playing tennis. 
who were playing for the college and winning for the college. And I thought, I reckon I can practice and beat those guys. So I did. So I got on the college team. And there was a full-size billiard table at college. And I thought, okay, there's not a lot of people in the billiards lineup, so I'll just see if I can learn how to play billiards. Because I'd never had a billiard table at home. But I thought, I can do this. So when I was having study breaks, so I'd study for 50 minutes, and I'd go across and I'd do 10 minutes of billiards practice and go back into 50 minutes of study, 10 minutes of billiards practice. It was my routine. So I got in the billiards thing. So I got my fifth sport up. So I got my blue. <laughs> so you're a professional billiards player. <laughs> yes. That's amazing. I didn't even know that was a sport, like a competitive sport in yes. education or within schooling facilities. It was at college. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> That'd get you very far in some places, I feel. Okay, cool. So you finished medicine. You did well. I passed. You passed, <laughs> which is still better than most. Um, <laughs> awesome. So you completed your medicine studies, and then from then on, you began to pursue a career in oncology. Am I correct? Well, it's partly correct, but there's, it's a two-stage process. Or well, three stages in a sense. First of all, you need to decide broadly the stream you want to do. Do you want to do psychiatry, surgery, or what's called medicine, which is using drugs to treat and diagnose people? So early on, I decided that surgery sounded pretty boring. I couldn't talk to people, so psychiatry was really out. And medicine was really academically interesting, and I thought that was for me. So you do basic training in medicine, and you kind of ditch surgery and psychiatry and delivering babies. And then you have to do specialty training to make you a general specialist, which means you're a specialist in kidney diseases, heart diseases, and lung diseases, all the different diseases. You're not great at them, but you're still a specialist, and you can be a specialist in those things. So that's the first thing you're doing. There's really hard exams you've got to get over to, to do that. Now, that process takes about five years. So you've done your six years of medical school, and then you, after five years as a doctor, you've then finished your basic specialty training. And at that point, you then decided, what am I going to be? Am I going to be an oncologist, a cardiologist, a kidney specialist, for example? So that's the juncture where I had to put my name in the ring and say, I want to be an oncologist. Okay, there you go. Do you, was there anything in particular that was drawing you towards that? or? Yes, I th- as you go through, again, being an enthusiastic person, as you go through your training, you think, this would be fun. Then you think, that'll be fun. What am I going to do? I finally chose oncology for a number of reasons. One was that back then it was a relatively new thing. And so it was really academically interesting. It was fascinating to think about cancer and how you use chemotherapy to deal with cancer. And so being a basically academic kind of person, it was academically interesting. Secondly, back then the treatments weren't all that successful. You could get people into remission, you could cure some diseases, but most of the time the outcomes weren't all that good. So what I realized though was that if you can't cure somebody, that you can really make their treatment process and their time while they're going through the treatment or existing as good as possible. I could do that by how I spoke to them, how I treated them, and how I dealt with the family. And so I thought, okay, if I can't cure them, I can at least make their life better by their hospital experience. And that was really important to me. Thirdly, you had to be a really good general doctor because patients getting chemotherapy, particularly back then, they got really sick, 
in lots of different ways. So to treat them properly, you didn't just have to dream up what chemotherapy they got. You had to look after them when they had this, the, the side effects of the chemotherapy. So it was a challenge to be a really good doctor to fix all their problems that occurred as they went along. And fourthly, being a really optimistic kind of person, I was sure treatments were going to get better. So although it didn't look great at the time, I knew things would improve. And so they're basically the four reasons. Butter bing, butter boom, and then you did it. Yep. So how long have you been in oncology, if you don't mind sharing? I was going to say I'm a bit like a woman and don't like to share my age. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> but it's about 25 years. Okay, all right, which is a good innings mm. in oncology. You would have seen a lot happen. It's changed incredibly during that time. Yeah. Yes. But during the time, there's two parts of it. One is seeing the new treatments that come along. The second part is just getting better and better at what you do. So you don't stop learning when you finish your specialty training. When you finished five years of specialty training as the basic training, which I explained, and then four years of training in oncology, almost nothing at that point. You think you should know everything, but you know very little. And so the more years you do things in oncology or any other specialty things, and so you put the pieces together better. And so when you see a problem, when you see a person responding psychologically or physically in a certain way, your experience really builds. And so the fact that I did it for so long, you get better and better, which is good. You don't just stagnate and be the same. Yeah. What do you specialize in? Okay, so oncology is a very broad field. And basically you can break it down into which organ of the body has got the cancer starting. So if you've got brain cancer, it means your cancer started in the brain. So my field of oncology is what's called hemato-oncology, which is basically diseases of the immune system that have become cancerous, diseases of the lymph gland, so lymph glands have become cancerous, environmental diseases such as leukemia and myeloma. So that's what I've focused on for most of my career. Okay, which probably sounds like a lot of People might not know how to break that down. I do because that is relative to the type of cancer that I had. So I guess the simple way of looking at it is that people break oncology down to the solid tumours. So a liver cancer is solid. Breast cancer is a solid lump. Whereas there's the blood cancers and the liquid cancers, which are things that can move around. Lymph glands, the lymph tissue actually moves around the body. So my sort of oncology is the, the liquid oncology compared mm. to the solid lumps. There you go. Break it down a little bit more. Oh. <laughs> awesome. This is a bit of a personal question, but had you been affected by cancer prior to studying oncology? I had in a couple of different ways, but not in ways that made me choose oncology and not really in ways that altered how I dealt with it. So firstly, for example, I had skin cancer when I was 23. And there's a funny story with that. I had a skin cancer on my arm and I was a student at the hospital, the PA hospital. And my older brother was a first year surgical trainee. And he said, oh, I'm gonna be a surgeon. I can cut that out for you. So we went through the emergency department at PA, which at that point was being redeveloped. So there was electrical wires from the ceiling and junk everywhere found a table and he said, hold out your arm. He put in an anaesthetic and he 
did a cut, which is now an inch long, on my arm. And he's... Oh, my God. And he <laughs> started cutting. And he finished the first inch, and I said, the anaesthetic isn't working yet. Can you wait before you do the other half? Which he did. So being a squash fanatic, I, he did the job, and he said, okay, do you want to go and play squash this afternoon? On the arm that was just operated on. <laughs> so I did. It probably made the scar worse than it should have been. <laughs> <laughs> As you do when you're 23. Yes. <laughs> but was that all good? In terms so of the outcome, yeah. So it was a non-melanoma skin cancer. So it was harmless, but still mildly scary when you're only 23 and I've got 60 years ahead of me to dodge other kind of cancers. Yep. So that may made me think. For mm-hmm. sure. Secondly, something which was more significant than that was that my mother had breast cancer probably in her late 40s. And that was when I was going through the process of studying for the general specialty exams. And she still lived in the town where I grew up. So that was a thousand miles up in North Queensland. So didn't see them very much. So the thing that really dawned upon me was the fact that I thought, okay, if this isn't cured, I might only see her 20 20 times in my whole life. Yeah. And that was really hard. Mm. When you really break it down, I thought, look, 20 times is what I'm going to see it. She's only 40. Mm. And I can remember thinking that because I was out running and I always think when I run because you've not got too many other things. And so I was just out pondering life and thinking about this diagnosis and I might have been running to get over the diagnosis just to calm me down. But... I can remember specifically the streets I was running on when I had that thought. It obviously affected me at the time, but even if she ended up doing fine, life went on, and there was then a lot of years between that process and actually deciding to become an oncologist. So it didn't actually affect me because by that time she got over it. But Mm -hmm. the thought processes of how scary it is probably stayed inside and you would also i guess that'd be something that you'd take take with you every single day and with giving people these diagnoses is i guess the emotional side of things as well yeah i think the fact that you realize the impact on people's lives it's very easy i think to underestimate the effect that cancer has on people's lives people have this general sense of they're sick they're worried but they don't really understand what it means on a personal basis. And secondly, even very practical things, like people forget that having cancer is incredibly time-consuming. It's not just that you get sick. Yeah. It's not just that you miss out on things you want to be doing. It wastes and takes a lot of time. And life is precious, and you lose time just being fixed. So essentially they're the things that had, in terms of things that had affected me prior to becoming an oncologist, Yes. Those things have affected me since since becoming an oncologist that were cancer-related, although I think it's fair to say that it was looking after and knowing and treating cancer patients has affected me more than my own family dealings with cancer. That makes sense. So my life has been incredibly enriched by sharing that life with people who have cancer in all kinds of different ways. But in terms of a, from a more personal level, There have been cancer things that have gone on during my life. I've had two close relatives dying of melanoma prematurely. I had more skin cancers myself. And so on the basis of those experiences, and with my mother having had breast cancer and she subsequently got colon cancer, I take getting screened for cancer really seriously. 
So for me and my family and people I speak to, I say get yourself checked out because many of these things are, are curable if you get them early. So keep aware of when you should get checked out. That's really important. And so my personal experiences and my family experiences have given me a stronger desire to do that than actually treating all these people with cancer. Okay, which is good, which is a good lesson as well. Okay, I didn't know that about you. Oh yes, okay, maybe it's coming up, yeah. So there's questions about some future technology stuff and some questions about how cancer has affected my life. So how cancer has affected my life and mental health is a section and future technology is a separate section. <clears throat> so that's where we're up to now. Thank you for sharing about how cancer has affected you on a personal level in terms of your family and friends. I wanted to talk about technology and uh, I guess how it's forever evolving, much like cancer as well, but specifically has evolving technology given you faith for current and or future cancer patients? I have incredible confidence in it. And if I can give you three short stories to illustrate that. The first was when I first started oncology time as a specialist, I was doing research in a condition called chronic myeloid leukemia, which was a blood cancer. And at that time, the disease was 100% fatal, unless you're lucky enough to get a bone marrow transplant and if you had a bone marrow transplant, you had a one in two chance of dying from the bone marrow transplant. So it was a bad disease to have. And my interest then from the research perspective was how do you use the patient's own immune system to deal with the cancer? And I had a lot of confidence and a lot of intellectual reasons why I thought that was going to work. So I established a research laboratory that was researching how do you get people's immune systems to deal with this particular form of leukemia. And we started a clinical trial and we treated five people with this treatment that I invented in the laboratory along with my collaborating team. And of those five people, one of them is still alive from that treatment, which is great. But the real story is the fact that we had to stop the trial, not because it wasn't working, but because a new drug came out. So I was targeting the gene defect that was causing the cancer by making the immune system go after it. The drug companies developed a drug that went after the gene mutation. And that drug was so effective that everybody wanted to go on the drug trial, not on our immune therapy trials. So our trials weren't feasible just because everybody wanted to get on board with this other amazing drug. Now that drug, since that time, I've not had one single patient with that disease die from their leukemia. Although it would have been fun for my treatment to be the end of the story, the reality was not one single patient of mine has ever died since that, and that was 25 years ago. Wow, that's crazy. So that's the first story. The second story is when we continued with immune therapy, we then used our interest and our technology to go down different paths. And we started developing vaccines for cancer. With the basic thing was that we would give people a vaccine that contained things about the patient's cancer, just like the COVID vaccine contains bits of the COVID virus, we would give people a vaccine that contained bits about their cancer, either the cancer or something we generated in a lab with the cancer to deal with it. And that's a treatment that worked. 
and we have patients again who have been cured by the vaccines that we developed. But the vaccines were very technologically difficult and very difficult to deliver for people in the whole world. You really needed drugs for that. And so now immune therapy drugs are the standard of care for most forms of cancer. Not necessarily the first treatment you might try, partly because they're very expensive, but now immune therapy with drugs from drug companies are the standard treatment for many forms of cancer that were previously incurable. So that's an incredible development. And one of the reasons we pursued immune therapy was that I knew that the immune system was designed to deal with whatever's out there. So when we're born, our bodies don't know what's out there. They know there's bad things there out to get us, but we don't actually know what they are. So the immune system has to be adaptable to deal with anything that comes along, one of which is cancer. And so the vaccines we're working on and the drugs that are now used build on the immune system's capacity to just deal with the bad things that are out there. It doesn't matter what it is. And so I'm optimistic that's going to get even better. And the good thing with if you use your immune system is mostly it's harmless. It's your own immune system. It's looking after you. So the drugs do sometimes cause side effects and sometimes they're bad. But overall, you can have a normal life. The third story is about a more recent drug. And it's for a form of lymphoma and also for a different form of leukemia than the one I was talking about previously. And it became available about 10 to 15 years ago, but we didn't know until more recently how good it really was. And so you know, I had a significant number of patients who had the particular form of leukemia or lymphoma for which this drug was useful. And they had had all the chemotherapies known to mankind and they were guaranteed to die from their disease. But then the drug came along. So people finished all the chemotherapy, disease had relapsed. What do we do now? The drug became available, they've had the drug. So I've now got patients who've been on those drugs for five to 10 years and they're still alive, lead a normal life. There's occasional side effects that need a bit of tinkering here and there, but they're all working full time or retiring full time and enjoying life. Whereas a decade ago, they were guaranteed to be dead. All of those people are still in remission. So they're the three stories that show that progress is being made and that it's really only the tip of the iceberg. If you look at the dollars being spent on research, the sophistication of the research, that's only the beginning. Okay. With, in regards to that last story, in terms of the medication, is it in a pill form? Yes, yeah, so that's, it's a tablet. So people just get tablets every day and they have to keep taking them. That's all they do. Wow. Yeah, so they're not, it's not a chemotherapy. It's a drug that specifically targets the origin of their cancers. And so that's why there's virtually no side effects. It's not a standard chemotherapy drug. It's just a tablet. So they come along and they see me every three months to see how they're going. That's all we do. Okay. This is a bit off topic. Could I ask you about COVID and cancer? Do you think it's been drowned out a little bit? cancer research? I think COVID and cancer is an incredibly important issue, but one that doesn't really hit the media, and that's why it's important. There's two parts to it. The kind of simple part is the fact that people with cancer are immune suppressed, and therefore, if you're going to get COVID and die, a cancer patient is always going to be more, more afraid and has a higher chance of dying because of cancer 
in their treatment. So in our clinic, we were absolutely paranoid about COVID because I would have an entire waiting room of people and if someone came in with COVID and spread it to the room, they'd probably all die. It was really important. The second part of it though, which most people don't think about, is the fact that COVID has prevented cancer surgeries being done and in some cases prevented cancer, other cancer treatments being done. And so whilst we hear of the incredible statistics of people dying from COVID, there's arguably a similar number of people who are now going to die from cancer because their cancer surgery or treatment was delayed because of COVID. And there was a paper written, one of the authors was my brother who's a cancer specialist in, in London and he's a cancer surgeon and he could not do his cancer operations because all surgery was cancelled because of all the COVID things. So you can say, well, it's how do you decide what to do? But again, with COVID, one thing that a lot of people forget is that a lot of people who die from COVID are in the 80s and 90s, and realistically, and I know this may sound callous, but realistically, if they didn't die from COVID this year, they were going to die from the flu or from pneumonia. It's just that the statistics are that they're dying from COVID. But because people are panicking about the reality of a 90-year-old person dying of some kind of infection, that's blocked beds, prevented cancer surgery, and will lead to the death of young people with cancer that needn't have happened. Mm. So it's a very important subject. Okay, interesting stuff. Dr. Nicol, I am going to dive a little bit deeper. As I have pre-warned you, this podcast is... We do focus on mental health and we do focus on the emotional side of things. Cancer affects patients, families, caregivers. But what about the oncologist? I want to know, has working so closely with cancer patients affected your life and your mental health? I'll try and break that down into two separate sections, how it's affected my life, which is interwoven with mental health, and then the mental health side of things. So my first year as a trainee oncologist or hemato-oncologist, there was a young girl in the ward and I was responsible for her care who had leukaemia. She was 15, she had a beautiful older sister who was 17 and loving parents. And so she was in hospital continuously for four months getting chemotherapy. And every time she got chemotherapy she didn't go in remission so she had another round and another round. And It made me realise at that time that no matter how bad my life may seem, with all the petty or serious things that you deal with, that I'm still better off than this person. I'm still better off than everybody else in the ward. So it was really good because it taught me not to feel sorry for myself. There's someone who's worse off. So that has really influenced me. And I think it influenced how I practised medicine after that. And I'll get to that in a roundabout kind of way. The second way it's helped me is that is being involved with people who I wouldn't otherwise have ever met. That we all tend to stick with our little social groups or our social structures. One of the really great things about medicine in general and in oncology is that you get to meet and you get to be close with people from all walks of life who you otherwise would never have met. And because I'm a basically shy kind of person, I'd never have spoken to them. But because they were with me 
and I was with them and we were talking about their problems and doing with their treatment, I got to know these people from all walks of life and that was a fantastic experience. I really gained a lot from that. So that really enriched my life. And the second thing is that one of the most important things in my view in dealing with cancer patients is how you talk to them and how you treat them, treat them as people. And so I tried really hard to work out the right words to say, the right way to answer people's questions on a person-by-person basis. So to do that, step one is you've got to be honest and open. So you have to choose words and choose answers that are honest and open. But the precise words that you give, how many words you give, is a hugely important thing. And I found that a massive challenge. So in the same way that an athlete or a sportsman, they love the intensity and the agony of the match. That's what gives, gives them a high. So whilst talking to cancer patients, it wasn't agonizing or difficult, but it was really satisfying to just think through, how do I say the right thing at the right time? Yeah, and also it'd be really hard as well. It is hard, but I guess I always try to learn. So sometimes you go away from a conversation and you think, gee, that didn't go down as well as I really wanted it to. They didn't pick up on what I said, or I spoke for too long, or I didn't clarify a particular point, or just didn't work out for uncomplicated reasons. So I always tried to take something home from it. And so it was, a, it was good because... As I said, I'm an academic person, I like learning. So I learned continuously of how do I do this better? And what mistakes do I make? And one interesting story, which is a bit of a trivial story in terms of what I'm really trying to say, but just illustrates how the unexpected could happen. Now, again, it was fairly early in my career and a patient had been diagnosed with leukemia and all the family gathered around and there was a, a hospital room with about 10 people in the room patient was lying on the bed and I was there explaining their diagnosis and what their implications would be. And on the one hand that shows you the challenge that I have to think of the right words for these 10 different people who are ages 20 to 60 who I've never seen before but I've got to think of the right words. But the actual point of the story was I was halfway through my spiel and one of the 10 people fainted and they fell forward flat on their nose and they broke their nose. So I was informed to always make sure that if you're giving people the bad news that they're all sitting down. There you go. <laughs> How was their broken nose? It got better. It they got, got better. over it. When I was younger I got hit by a ceiling fan and my cousin fainted the exact same time. Yeah. In terms of moving on from so they're the kind of challenges and the joys and the, the good things that, that the cancer has brought to me. But if you look at things that you know, life's never perfect, it's always a, it's always the other side of everything. So what's been less than perfect? And so one thing that's less than perfect is to do the job properly, you've got to be there when the person needs you. That you can't just clock off at five. You can't see them at 4.25 or 4.30 and tell them, oh, it's terrible, you've got cancer, but I've got to go at five. I'll give you some more information on Friday when I come back. I don't think that's fair. You've got to see the job through. And that may be five or six or seven or eight o'clock or whatever it was. 
And so part of the job and part of my philosophy from my earlier story that I might want to be at home. I want to be at home with my kids and I'm hungry and I've been working for 10 hours, but you're worse off than me. So do the right thing and stick it out. It affects your quality of life, but you're still happy you've done the right thing. You leave the conversation pleased you did it, maybe even proud you've done a good job, but it still affects your outside life. It affects your ability to do the things you want. And I loved my sport, but I had to give up most of my sports because you couldn't show up. They'd say, oh, do you want to play at six o'clock? And I said, I don't know if I'll be there at six o'clock. I'd love to play, but I couldn't commit. So I had to give up things that I loved because I couldn't promise that I could be there. I physically didn't have the time to be there. So it, it does affect your life. I guess looking back of all those things that I never regret the time that I've spent with people and helping them as best I could. My biggest regret is the fact that because you do those things, you don't have the time for your own family. It just falls by the wayside. And I think when people are on their deathbed and looking back at their life, it's often regrets that they didn't spend the time with their own family. And my job was doing my best to keep other families together. And so I didn't have the chance to do that with my own family. So it's hard. It's hard for me to think that I wasn't there to have fun with them. And I feel sorry for them only having half a father. But luckily, I have three kids and they're now adults. They're all smarter than me. They're more successful than me. They're all nicer than me. So either my wife can take 100% of the credit or I somehow inspire them. Yeah. <laughs> or a bit of both. <laughs> but that's amazing. Now, just one other thing. So that's not so much the mental health issues. But that's just really how the job can affect your life if you try and do it as well as you can. You can shut yourself off and stick nine to five, but I think if you want to be oncologist, you've got to go with the territory, which means do the job properly. From the mental health point of view, people often ask me, you, know, you have patients that are dying or families that are miserable and giving people bad news. How does that affect your own mental health? And the main thing with that is, I think there's an important difference between sadness and mental health as a disease, in a sense, or mental health as a problem but isn't a disease. So if I had someone who died, I would get incredibly sad. And I could go back to my office and cry. I've had patients I was physically crying with, and it's incredibly hard. I had one, one patient, I remember, very early on in my training, who was a guy in about, he was 25, and he had leukemia and the treatment had failed and he'd got to a stage where because of some weird thing with his leukemia he couldn't move all he could move was his eyelashes and his wife had had just become pregnant and all he wanted to see was the ultrasound of his baby Being involved in that sort of situation is incredibly sad and incredibly difficult. But sadness is a normal human emotion and you get over it. So you deal with it. So it's not a mental health problem. It's, a, it's an emotion. And if you don't have emotions, you can't enjoy the job and you can't enjoy the job properly. How it affects you with mental health is it does get to a stage where you're not functioning properly where you don't get over the sadness of losing a patient. And 
the interesting thing with mental health is I don't think most oncologists who have potential mental health issues or are steering towards that way, I don't think the mental health is because of their sadness with how their patients are doing or because they might have made a mistake and things they think they feel responsible. The mental health issues, interestingly, are due to hospital administration. And that's a problem in the private sector in Australia, in the public sector in Australia, and all over the world. And the biggest thing that affected my mental health throughout my career was having to deal with hospital administrations who mostly were overburdened with people who did nothing and who didn't care about patients. So I had real patients in front of me who you wanted to help and the administration didn't really care. And so there was this constant battle with the administration saying, I think this person needs A at this time and the hospital wouldn't facilitate that. My brother who is a cancer specialist in London he loves his work, but the hospital administration absolutely drives him crazy. And the thing that will drive him out of his job is not his love for his job. It's the fact that he just gets desperate and down about dealing with the hospital administration. And so, in summary, most mental health issues are because doctors want to be the advocate for their patients. They've got a real person in front of them and they want to fix that person as best they can we discussed mental health and mental health, sorry, and your life and how it has affected you. How do you switch off when you clock off at the end of the day? Okay, several parts to that, and part of it comes back to the mental health issues. So if you're working very long hours, it actually becomes very hard to switch off because there's not enough hours left between getting home and sleeping to actually switch off properly. So that is a mental health danger in a sense. But the things that I have done to switch off, number one, which I've done every single day that I've worked, is to exercise. That's absolutely critical. And it's critical for several reasons. Obviously it has the health benefits and keeps your weight down, but it's psych psychologically and mentally it's crucial. And it's crucial because you work, you it's intense, in many ways, so your adrenaline level when you finish or start is high. So if you exercise hard, you burn off the adrenaline, and adrenaline is a big cause of bad feelings or anxiety. So I exercise really hard every single day to burn off the adrenaline. The second part of exercising, again a reason why everybody should do it, especially if you're having bad or down times, is the fact that if you're exercising hard, it helps how you think about things. So for example, when I start exercising, either before a, a day that's stressing me out because I've got, you know, maybe I'm gonna have a scan that I'm hoping works out well, I'm gonna say, well, what am I gonna do if the person's scan is bad? So you can wake up worrying about that. So it's good to be able to get to work feeling relaxed and good. So by exercising, you get to a stage where you're relaxed and when you begin exercising, your brain's full of all kinds of stuff and you're thinking about this and worrying about that. But at the end of it, whether you're going for a long swim or a hard run or a hard bike ride, even though the first half of it, your brain's active and doing this and that, by the end of it, all your brain can actually do is focus on 
doing the task? Keep the legs moving, keep running forward. What's my style of my swimming? Am I kicking? Am I moving my arms around? So your brain at the end of the exercise can't focus on anything but just existing in the exercise. So it clears your brain of all those scary thoughts and all those things that can cause you to get depressed or anxious. That's incredibly important. And then the third part of it is, which is particularly relevant after a day's work, is the fact that it's like when you've had a computer going on for too long. It stops working properly. It is not responding things in the advertisement and the mouse stops working or the USB port stops working. And so you reboot and the computer wakes up and it starts working properly. The exercise, because it forces you just to do some simple activity, it reboots your brain and all those complex thoughts somehow seem clearer and easier to deal with. So exercise is essential for me and I think something that everybody should do for all of those reasons. Other things I do are completely unrelated and are more things that I do for fun rather than because of a mental or physical necessity. I love to travel and previously you'd work really hard for a few months and then you get a week away. You'd go for a conference or go for a holiday and you'd just do those things that you loved and all the work was just forgotten for a week. And so just having that pause meant you could re-energize and restart. So the fact that with COVID, you just worked for two years without doing that particular thing, which I love, I think may have affected my mental health during the COVID period in ways I didn't recognize until after it. Looked back and think, oh my gosh, I've been crazy. It's because, and then I thought, why am I so crazy? I'm just working, that's normal, that's me. But then I realized it was because I wasn't doing the travel and the downtime that my, my body loved doing. So that's how I switch off. That's how you switch off, awesome. That's good. I also cook, surprisingly. Mm. Are you a good, do you think you're a good cook? I'm getting better (laughs) and I think I'm overall not too bad, yes. So before we wrap things up, Dr. Nicol, I wanted to ask you one more important question or two more important questions. The first one being, do you have any advice for new patients? And then followed by that, I'd like to discuss your favourite organisations that you have worked with or you've seen people work with. Okay. So I guess I spent my days giving people advice, so hopefully I can give some good advice. The general advice is based on some of the philosophies I've developed from the cancer patients I've been treating, things I've learned from that. And there's three things. One is to remember the importance of hope, the power of inspiration, and the courage of resilience, because they are really important. It's often stated that people shouldn't be given false hope, for example, which is why you need to be open and honest. But that's not the same as having hope. And the thing that's given me the greatest pleasure, in a sense, from being an oncologist is when families of people who died, they come back, when they're ready, they come back. And they said, thank you for treating my husband or wife or whatever. But they said, we really appreciated the fact that you gave us hope. And so when you hear the diagnosis of cancer, it may be very easy to feel hopeless. Why me? So I think when you have a diagnosis of cancer and you first hear about it, or if you relapse or treatment seems to be going on endlessly, remember the importance of hope. Don't think it's unnecessary that. 
and your families need to share the importance of hope because it genuinely improves your quality of life. The second thing is to remember the power of inspiration. Find someone who has inspired you in some way and be inspired and let that help you with how you deal with cancer. And thirdly, a more difficult thing to explain is having the courage of resilience. Now to try and explain that and why it's important is that if you're given a diagnosis of cancer, particularly if you're young or if you're a parent with young children, it's an absolutely dreadful thing to hear. And so it's very easy to go home and lie around in bed and be depressed and feel sorry for yourself and completely drop your bundle. And although that's incredibly sad and horrible for the person involved, it's actually the easy option. You're just giving up. You're just lying around feeling sorry for yourself. So to be resilient, it actually takes courage to get out of your bed and have the courage to fight what's happening and to be a normal person and to try and lead a normal life. And that takes courage. And so if you get the diagnosis of cancer, remember to be courageous. Good advice. Great advice. And um, that's something that I live. Listen to all of your advice and look at me now. I'm all good. I'm okay. <laughs> Have a ridiculous haircut, but we can look past that. Dr. Nicol, I wanted to discuss your favourite organisations, if you have any, or any that come to mind? I have four that come to mind because they're things that mean a lot to me in very different ways. Three of them are charities or organisations that help cancer patients, and one is one that is inspired by cancer patients and not designed to help cancer patients, but is inspired by cancer patients who I've had over the years. I'd like to talk about each four of those, if I can. Go for it. Each of them are based on those three principles, the importance of hope, the power of inspiration, and the courage to be resilient. So the first one is the Leukemia Foundation of Queensland. It's now become the Leukemia Foundation of Australia, but when I was most involved with it, it was the Leukemia Foundation of Queensland. And it was helpful in beginning my research career and it funded a large research laboratory doing treatments in lymphomas and leukemias. And so they were demonstrating and getting money, understanding the importance of hope that there will be something happening. Secondly, the other major thing that the Leukemia Foundation did and stood for was creating accommodation for country or regional people who needed to relocate down to Brisbane to have their treatment. It's hard enough having cancer treatment without being, with being away from your family, your job, your house, your dog, all those things. They provided the hope through research and they provided that bit of help with the resilience that was needed. Make a wish. The make a wish one, yeah. So it, it does the same thing. So if you're feeling miserable because your outcome's not looking good or because treatment's horrible, it's really important to have something to really hope for. So they address the importance of hope. They address inspiration because if you want to be a donor to the Make-A-Wish, you can do something that's really inspirational for somebody. And depending upon what wish someone may want to have, their wish may be something which 
inspires them in some way, inspires them to keep going. And thirdly, the Make-A-Wish, again, this helps to be courageous when you've got to be courageous and resilient. So it helps all of those three things. The third one is something I haven't had a lot to do with because it's a fairly rare kind of situation, is the canteen. Because young people with cancer, it's a fairly small group of people. There's lots of old people with cancer. And you're old and you've got to die from something. But when you're young, it's really tough. There's a small group of people. There's not a lot of community money in it. And Canteen tries really hard, the best they can, to just do something towards helping that young group of people. So I think they're a really admirable organisation. That's the first three which are there to help cancer patients. The fourth one is one that you won't have heard of because it's something which I've started recently. We've got funding to get it going. We've got funding for a three-year program and it's based on two things. Based firstly on the incredible inspiration that I got from cancer patients. Now, obviously, I'm not going to have been inspired by every person I ever met. But there was a group of people who I remember very well who inspired me incredibly with their cancer in different ways. And so the fact that they inspired me so much made me realise the importance of the power of inspiration because they inspired me as a human but they inspired me to be better and do better. And so that triggered a thought process of something I wanted to achieve. Now that sort of thought process began around the time that COVID happened. And COVID affected a lot of very bright young people or youngish people in the performing arts field. And the performing artists, whether they be actors, whether they're musicians or violinists or singers or anything in the performing arts or in the designing drawing arts they had no incomes because people couldn't go and watch their performance and so the intention is for there to be an annual award for a person or persons in those fields which is a large monetary award to help their next step of their career to kickstart them to the next thing if they show those three characteristics they don't have to be the best violinist who comes out of the conservatorium they've got to be good but they've got to have those other characteristics. So I think the final thing I'd like to share with people is something that's really close to my heart and which inspires me every day. There's a famous speech by a chap called Admiral McRaven from America, and it's called the Make Your Bed Speech, which was given at a graduation ceremony at the University of Washington. And it gives 10 principles to life based on his experience in SEAL training. And it's something which everybody should listen to and watch 100 times. But relevant to having cancer is a few things that you might not think about. One of his messages was that if you want to be successful in life, you can't do it alone. You can't paddle a boat by yourself. You need somebody else. So if you have cancer, make sure you have a partner or partners who do that. I don't just mean a life partner. The partner is also the doctors and the medical team that you're working with.
So from the medical person's perspective, have a partner that's going to help you paddle the boat. And you may need to change who you have, you may need to shop around, you may need to do whatever it takes, but you won't be successful unless you have a partner to paddle your boat with. The final of the 10 points in the speech, which is really about changing the world and the power of all of us to change the world just by changing the lives of a few people, is that if you want to change the world, and in your case, if you have cancer, changing the world means your world. It means staying alive, means getting better, it means making the most of your life, whether it be short or long. And to do any of those things, don't ever ring the bell. And that comes from the fact that in the Navy SEAL compound, there was a bell in the middle of the compound. And if the training got too tough for you and you couldn't keep going and you wanted to leave, all you had to do was go into the compound and ring the bell. But if you want to change the world, if you want to change your world, never ever ring the bell. Don't ring that bell. <laughs> Dr. Nicol, thank you so much. I think I'm speaking on behalf of myself and especially my family. Thank you for everything that you've done for me and everyone else. I've thanked you a million times, but I'll never ever be able to thank you enough. My life is I have been able to live it and live it large and live it to the absolute fullest and it wouldn't be I wouldn't be anywhere or I wouldn't have seen the stuff that I've seen or achieved anything that I've achieved without you. So thank you so much for that and thank you for sharing. I know how hard it can be to talk about your life and talk about your journey, but here you are and I really appreciate it and I appreciate you, I know, amongst many people. So thank you for everything that you do. Here's my chance to start changing the world. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Not that you already haven't. <laughs>